listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Man, thank you, Adam and worship team. And church, you can go ahead and have a seat. It's, man, great to see this room almost completely full. And if you're viewing with us online, we're glad you are there. So this morning, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. As you're doing that, I want to kind of mention just a couple of things. One, I want to say thank you to uh, Fredo Hernandez and Aaron Finley. I saw them both in here this morning. Uh, Last Monday, they ended up closing out the very first year of the White House softball team. Now, I won't go into the wins and losses, uh, but man, I went out a few nights, and we'll just move past that. But man, it was great to see these guys. I do know uh, Bethel White House won the fan base every game, uh, but seeing those guys come together, uh, getting to know each other in that way, so thank you to Fredo and Aaron uh, for organizing that. Uh, And then over the next few weeks, I want you to know Clint has been working tirelessly on a plan to help us open up. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to be rolling out kind of the ideas that we've put together with the elders of how we can get back to what normal is going to be looking like. And But it's great to see all of you this morning. So here's what we're going to do over the next three weeks. Uh, We typically do this uh, this time of year where... We're going to kind of take three weeks and talk about the idea of vision. Why we are here, what we are about, what are we striving for? And this is important no matter really what we are doing. Uh, Thinking through this week that, man, how we're about to start school and uh, kids have not been in for five months now. And parenting has been hard at times. But taking a moment to remind ourselves, why are we doing this? What has God called us to? And The idea of marriage and going, okay, God, man, as great as this is, as difficult as it can be at times, what did you create marriage to do or to be? Uh, To remind ourselves that the jobs we're in, that God has placed us there, not just a place to earn money, but it's a place where God has us around other people to be an influence and make an impact on their lives. So no matter what it is, it is good to take a moment to stop and to go and to think about, why are we here? What are we striving for? And so the vision of Bethel, if you've never read it, it's on our website. It's three kind of long paragraphs. I encourage you to go and do that. But we have boiled it down to really three statements uh, that summarize those paragraphs. It's these three. It's growing communities, building leaders, and living generously. But I like what Clint said. We're in a Discover Bethel. He said something. I thought, man, that's the best I've heard of anybody describing vision. He says, it's what we are doing, no matter what we're doing. And that's exactly true, that no matter what we are doing, this is it. Whether we're serving on a team, we're uh, serving as elders or deacons, teachers, uh, whether we are uh, teaching our children, serving our community, uh, investing in our missionaries. I talked to Vincent uh, this morning um, from Zambia. Man, this is what we are doing, no matter what we are doing. But this morning, what we're going to talk about is so vital. If we get this right, if we do this well, everything we do matters and works. But if we miss the mark with this, nothing we do is going to matter, and it will not work. 
In fact, I think of all the things a church can do, this is the one thing that speaks volumes to those inside and especially those outside the church in our area. And it's the idea of community. Now, typically, I think when we think about community, we think of it this way. It's, you know, getting to know people. It's building relationships. And that is absolutely where community starts. And you must have that. But it's what follows that is more difficult and I believe even more vital. And it's the idea of how do we continue in this idea of community in maintaining a unity that speaks volume. In fact, all through Scripture you see this. In fact, in the, Old, uh, the New Testament, there's a phrase that is often used called one another. It's the Greek word uh, alion, meaning one another. It's used a hundred times in the New Testament. So therefore, it's important. In fact, 59 times it's used as a command. And you have heard some of these. It tells us to love one another, to honor each other, build up one another. Consider others better than yourselves. Comfort. Pray for one another. And the list goes on and on. But there's two things about unity I think we need to make sure we understand. One is this. Unity doesn't mean that we always agree. That's just not going to happen. That's not true unity. Unity is being able to disagree and work through those difficulties Still being able to do those things like care for one another, be kind, be compassionate, to show hospitality, even when we disagree. But the second thing is this, is without unity, the church will crumble. At least the church that others see. In fact, I found a book this week. Uh, looked it up on Amazon. Must be out of print because it was like $90. But in the 1976, a woman named Leslie Flynn wrote a book called Great church fights. Now, if you've been in church most of your life, you've probably experienced some of these, but some of them are fascinating. There was a church in Wales, true story. This church was divided over which pastor to call. One wanted one guy, the other half wanted another guy. So what do they do? Each group invited the guy to be there on the same Sunday. They both got up to preach at the same time, shouting over each other. They then, each congregation now split, had a song they wanted to sing. And they led them in both singing two separate songs at the same time trying to outdo each other. It got so bad she noted that the police had to be called. But a little closer to home, there's a church in Dallas, also a true story. Uh, this church was divided and neither group would leave. So what do they do? They each hired attorneys trying to kick the other group out of the church. Well, they got to the courts. The court would not hear this, said, take it to your denomination. Let them deal with it. So they got investigating, and this is what they found was the source of their division. It was at a church potluck, and an elder was served a smaller portion of ham than a student or a child, and that divided the church. That's where it all started. But then there was a list of other things. A church was divided, lost unity, get this, Clint, over the length of a pastor's beard. That divided them, believe it or not. One church was divided over which type of edger or weed eater to buy. Could not agree on it, and it created a division in the church. 
One of my favorites. They had some land. So maybe this little plot of land out here behind our parking lot. The church was divided over what to do. Two main ideas. A playground or a cemetery. And that divided the church. But this had to be the one I thought really struck me. A church was absolutely divided in an all-out fight over whether deviled eggs should be allowed to be served at a church dinner. And I mean, some of these things we read when they go, absolutely, these are absolutely ridiculous. But if we're not careful, all of these can happen. And the list can go on and on of the things that can cause disunity in a church. Now, we could look in the scriptures at a lot of places, but I want us to look at Ephesians 4. We're going to look at about the first 16 verses of Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. Notice verse 1, how he begins. He says, I, Paul, therefore a prisoner of the Lord. So Paul is sitting in a Roman prison, writing this letter. But he does not see himself as being held captive by Rome. He sees himself as a prisoner, a servant of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to the church, the believers in Ephesus. And this is what he wants them to know, believe, and do. He says, I urge you, I, I implore, I beg of you to walk, meaning to live your life in a manner worthy or something that lines up with the calling to which you have been called. But I'll hone in on that idea of calling because notice it there. Notice Paul does not say your calling. He's not speaking to them as individuals. He says, the calling. Meaning everybody in the group, collectively, this is what we are all called to do. So what's he call them to do? He lays, begins laying it out in verse 2. He's going to mark four things that should mark their life. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with, and there's our statement, one another. Let's quickly kind of walk through these. So he says, begins with humility, the opposite of pride. He says, this is putting others before yourself. It's seeing other people first. This goes on to say gentleness, and this is an interesting word. It's, it's the opposite of this idea of like self-assertion, of, of going after my own agenda. It's being gentle of allowing others and not asserting myself. And he says patience. It's the word endurance. It means never giving up under adversity. It's working, pursuing, going after, working through even disagreements or differences that we have with others. And then it's the fourth one. Bearing with one another, or forbearance. It's the idea that we must make allowances for the faults of each other. And if you don't know this already, I have just a few, okay? I have a few faults, and, and I know that, and, and so do you. And so what he's saying is that we have to make allowances for that, knowing that people are not perfect and life is messy. It's showing grace to other people like God has shown us. I think it's loving when it's difficult. 
So he says four things. With humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with or forbearance. But then notice how all of these are to be done. It says in love. Meaning it's not this thing that we do just because we have to. And it's not this idea of just gritting our teeth and, and doing it reluctantly. We are to do all of these, first of all, out of a love we have for God. And then a love for others that are created in His image. But that's how we begin seeing people. So the reason for living all of these out with humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance is not so that people would look at the church and go, man, aren't they just great? Because notice the reason in verse 3. Eager with anticipation to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The purpose for all of that is that there is a calling for us to maintain the unity of the Spirit. But here's the key. Notice the source of the unity that any church has, any group of believers, an ecclesia. Notice this is unity of the Spirit. Meaning this, unity is not something that we create. In fact, we couldn't do it. The unity comes from the Spirit. We're not the ones that create it, but we are called to maintain it. We are called to work towards it. I think that's true of anything, whether it's marriage or your family or your working environment, a group of friends, a softball team, the church. God creates the unity through the Spirit, and we are to maintain that. In fact, for all of this to happen, we all, have to have spirits of humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance because we're all called to that. And if we do that, we are maintaining the unity that only the Spirit can create. So then Paul shows us where this unity is created. And notice how many times he's going to use one word, the word one. For there is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Eight times he uses that word one. One body, spirit, hope, Lord, faith, baptism, God. Meaning, there is something Bigger, there is something greater that unites us that is bigger than anything that really should divide us. That what unites us is more important than all of the things any church would ever allow to come between them. Whether it's the length of a pastor's beard or which weed eater to buy or what to do with a piece of land, those are the things that should not become between the church. Well, thinking about that idea, I thought of marriage. Every time I've done a marriage ceremony, man, it's a great thing. You love as a pastor doing them. But thinking about marriage, how it describes a couple come together, and what does it say? One flesh. Only God could take two people with different personalities, different likes, dislikes, agendas, goals, only God can make them one. And the same with the church. Only God can take a group of people like us, 
as different as we might be with all of our likes and dislikes and agendas and experiences and personalities, God is the only one that can make us one body. So Paul's point is God creates the unity through the Spirit that we are to fight to maintain it. And it happens only when we pursue spirits of humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. So when you begin looking at these verses, it's what you notice is the first six verses focus on the beauty of unity. That we're all called to this. This is the thing we're all to be about, and this is how you go about doing it. But then Paul breaks down over the next several verses the beauty of our differences. Because look at verse 7. But grace was given to each one according to to us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So he uses the word grace, and it's got two major meanings here. First of all, it's that idea, it's something we don't deserve. It's something we could never earn. It's something that we could never work towards in order to maintain it. It is something that is given that we do not deserve. But the second idea Paul has in mind here is the idea of it being a gift a spiritual, a divine enablement to do something. So when you put those together, Paul is saying, but grace, something you don't deserve, a divine ability to do something. But what do we normally think of when we hear the word gift? When I think about it, it's what it is. I think of somebody, um, Kylie just turned 18 on Wednesday. So what do you do? You think about her and what she likes and what she doesn't like, and you think about something that she would enjoy, and you go and you purchase a gift and you give it to her. And then that gift is for her to go and enjoy it, wear it or put it on or whatever it might do. That gift is for you to take and for you to enjoy the gift. But Paul has something different in mind that he's describing. Because notice what Paul's going to do in verse 8. He's going to quote Psalm 68, thinking about you as a gift, a divine enablement. Notice what happens in verse 8. He says, therefore it says, quoting Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. Now in context, you have to go back to verse or chapter 3. This is a military idea where he is describing what we as believers have been freed from. There's four things. He says, philosophy of the world, the prince of the air, Satan, and our own flesh and evil desires. That Christ came and he comes to lead us captive from that. But then, when you begin reading, he turns around and does something with those captives. He doesn't just set them free so that they can then go and, and enjoy the rest of their life. When Christ comes, he ascended on high and he led a host of captives. And look at what he does with those he is freed. He gives them, he gave gifts to men. Meaning he gives the captives as gifts. He sets them free and then he turns around and he gives them as a gift. And guess who they are given as a gift to? The church. So when you have been freed by Christ, empowered by Him, 
he then turns around and gives you as a gift to the church. So no matter who you are, no matter how young or how old you might be, no matter how you might feel about how much you're gifted or not, I need you to hear me on this. If you're here and you are part of this church, Christ has given you as a gift to this church. In fact, I remember reading a story about four years ago. I think it played this out well. It's a guy named Russell Westbrook, and he had just won the MVP back in 2016. One of the things that he earned by earning this MVP is he earned a brand new car. So what does he do? He turned around and he gave that car to a single mom. But here's the point of that. Russell is the one that did all the work. He's the one that put in all the effort. He's the one that put in all the sweat on the court. But then he turned around and he gave the car as a gift. So that's what Christ has done for us. He has won the battle for our souls that we saw last week. He then turns around and gives you as a gift to the church. Now notice the diversity of these gifts in verse 9. In saying, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens so that he might feel all things. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers, meaning Christ gives all kinds of people as gifts to the church. And I believe the point is, all the gifts are needed. So if you're a part of Bethel, no matter who you are, you are important. That Christ has given you to this church for a reason. So in verse 12, notice what well, all of these gifts were given. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So first of all, one of the reasons you're here in this, the gifts need each other to be effective. The gifts don't work apart. It's just like a set of tools You know, a hammer isn't any good without something to nail or uh, thinking through a remote control, whatever it might be. It's no good without batteries. It takes all of these gifts coming together in order for them to work. So you and I, we share a calling. We share a purpose. The meaning, though, we need each other to fulfill that. Meaning, this church, what it has been called to, it can't do it. Without you. Notice he goes on. For the building up of the body. The second thing. All the gifts are needed. So that the body can grow. If any gift is missing. The body is incomplete. And it will not become what God has desired. That the body is not built. Just because of one or two strong leaders. It takes the entire body. It is very different. Working together as gifts to each other. So we no longer need to be thinking, well, I don't matter, I'm insignificant, or I'm just not that important, because that's not the truth. No, Christ is saying, I have set you free, and I've given you as a gift to the church. That this church cannot fulfill its purpose, its calling, without each gift working. 
But then notice what he does. He closes up by showing us how long we need to be doing this. And once we can hit these four things, we can all take a break and we can retire in ease. And he begins in verse 13. You're a part of a church. You're locking arms. You're doing this thing together. You're in biblical community. You're a gift given to each other. And we do this until we all attain the unity of the faith. Meaning we have to keep working. We have to keep growing. We have to keep equipping until every single one of us in here all have the unity of of faith. Now, once we think, okay, maybe I've got that one, he moves on. The second thing we get to focus on is in the knowledge of the Son of God. Meaning, when we all have a full knowledge of the Son of God, then we can take a break. When I read that this week, that means I believe Scripture is God's ultimate revelation to the church. That is how we know Him. That is how we discover is by getting in God's Word. But I think this also means there are things that I will learn about God, that you will learn about Him, that only happens in community. That we learn from each other and we see glimpses of who God is by being in community with one another. Well, then the third thing. So we obtain a unity of the faith, all of us, till we have a knowledge of the Son of God, a full knowledge, and to mature manhood. But this isn't talking about us just men, even though we know we need to mature more. He's talking about the church as large. It means we need to keep doing this until we all move from being babies to grown adults. Now, what is the number one characteristic of a baby? They're selfish beings. It's just true. They are just selfish beings. That's how they're created. They don't know anything else. In fact, I've never heard of a baby getting hungry going, man, I sure could eat. You know what? Mom's a little busy right now. I'm just going to wait. When she gets time, then she'll come and feed me. I've yet to see a baby going, you know what? Dad just put on that new shirt. Man, I better wait to spit up. You know, he's going to have to change before he goes to work. I'll just wait. No, they're just selfish beings. That's how they are created. So Paul is saying until we all move from a self-centered mindset of, to thinking about other people, we keep going. But then there's a fourth thing, I believe the most important. You do this until the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by the, the wind of every doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. So we keep doing this. We keep fighting to maintain the unity that the Spirit creates until we all exhibit the fullness of Christ. And we know that'll never happen on this side of glory. So the thing is, we are all meant to be a part of the church until He calls us home or He returns. So we're always to grow in humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance until we all come to a complete unity as the body of Christ. A full knowledge of God from selfish babies to loving adults until we all have the minds, hearts, and actions that are full of Christ.
And the point is this, is that this cannot happen apart from unity. Because look at verse 15. Rather speaking, truth in love, you have to have both. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. So a biblical community, a unified community, isn't a bunch of individuals going out there and doing a bunch of things to become more Christ-like. Yes, there are some things we should be doing. There are some things individually we are called to do. But that can only take us so far. We cannot become who God desires us to be without each other. Meaning there's a growth that can only happen in community. And what Paul is saying is the more we become united, the more we become one, you know what happens? That is when we become more like Christ. Because look at the last verse. From whom the whole body, joined, held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part, when each gift, each person is working properly, notice what happens. That makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And I think what it means is very simple. And I believe you care about this because you're here, you're online, you're investing in this. Is that you really want to grow. You really want to mature spiritually. You want to be more Christ-like. But that can only happen through community. That's how God has designed it. Yes, there are many things we should personally be doing to grow privately, but you cannot get there all by yourself. So spiritual growth happens through community. But here's what I know about it. It's hard. And it's messy. And it's frustrating. And it's scary. Put yourself out there to really get involved in people's life and to trust them with things. We know it's difficult. But he's telling us it's always worth it because there are things that happen. There's a maturity, a growth that can only happen through community. And you grow by being a gift to the body. In fact, we cannot grow into being spiritually mature only by focusing or working on ourselves. It's only through a deep involvement in a biblical church community that that can happen. So I've been thinking about over this last several weeks, and over the next several weeks, we're going to be rolling out some opportunities for this to happen. Men's Bible study, it's going on. It meets on Tuesday morning, 6.30, up in the office. Women's Bible study is about to kick off in just a couple of weeks. You're going to be hearing more plans of us opening up more and more ministries for these things to happen. And I was thinking back, it's hard to believe it was spring break when everything began to change. And we had to stop meeting in person. And one of the things I noticed right off the bat was really how much I enjoyed being together and coming up and filming in an empty room on a Wednesday or Thursday, it was just not the same. And then not being able to meet on Easter morning, it's one of the strangest feelings I've ever had, it seemed like. 
But as the weeks went on, Clint and I, sitting in the office, began thinking about, man, how's this going to work out? What do we think God is going to do? How is he going to use this? He tells us for his glory and our good. How is all this craziness, how is he going to use this? One of the things that I hope is that through all of this, that we would not take for granted the privilege of being able to gather all together. That being able to come together as a church would mean something greater. But the second thing was this. Since we had to kind of take a break for a while, that when we got to come back together, that we would value the importance of community, maybe like we've never had before. But I know it's scary. It's difficult. It eats part of our schedule up. It, it, it can get difficult really getting into people's lives and letting them see who we really are. Putting myself out there to serve in a way maybe I'm completely uncomfortable with. And so I hope you'll be here next week because it's going to be exciting where we're going to get to install new deacons and elders. And they'll tell you that's a scary thing to step into. So the first thing I hope that happens is that we would not take for granted the privilege of being able to meet together. And I pray that through all of this, God would build in us and show us that we would value the importance of community, maybe like we've never had before. With life groups and small groups, that it wouldn't just be another activity that we think we're supposed to go do. But we would go in it with fresh eyes of knowing, you know what, God has given me to this church as a gift and that He wants to use me so that I grow and they grow and we grow in to a greater Christ-likeness. And so I pray as a church that we don't miss, I think, this great opportunity. Let's pray about that. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.